welcome once again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm really grateful to be joined this week by Sister Gregory Healy. Sister Gregory received her Master's of Divinity from Notre Dame in 2010, and she's now a temporarily professed sister at the Benedictine Abbey of Regina Laudas in Bethlehem, Connecticut. So, Sister Gregory, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Dan. I'm really happy to be talking to you today. Yes, I am happy to talk to you as well. So we'll start at the beginning. Where are you originally from? What are some of your fond childhood memories? Well, I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, in the middle of a blizzard. And <laughs> uh, my family moved slightly north enough to get out of blizzards. We moved to Northford when I was a baby. Mm-hmm. Northward, Connecticut. And then when I was about eight, we moved to Canton, Connecticut. And my parents are still there to this day. And I grew up, I had an older brother, Michael, and a younger sister, Meredith. And just lots of fond memories of being in the rolling hills of Connecticut. We lived by the Farmington River and just in a, a beautiful area. And pretty kind of normal childhood, just going to public school and growing up. Mm-hmm. Were there any strong moments of faith from your childhood that you remember that you know really helped you establish that aspect of your life? Yeah, probably too many to count. Mm-hmm. My parents were and are very faithful Catholics, and so we'd, we'd go to Mass every Sunday, and they were very involved in their parish life. So I think my dad was a Eucharistic minister. My mom has done lecturing. She was in the folk group. I joined her singing in that and just active in the community. My mom would do things like Meals on Wheels. My dad would lead bereavement groups. They're just, I can't even name all the Mm -hmm. things that they did. So just watching them live out their faith in that way, in a very quiet way. They never talked about what they did. They just kind of did it. Mm. That was pretty important. And then just having regular CCD and youth group at the parish was formative. And I think some things in particular about my family, I could say is that my mom has a great sense of celebration. And Mm. so in the house, we would have, you know, the typical things of like, you know, you get the Christmas tree, and then you've got the nativity set. And so as a kid, I could play with the nativity figures. Sure. And like one Christmas, she decided we were going to have a Christmas picnic. So she put out this like red and white checkered tablecloth (laughs) and we just like sat underneath the tree and just like taking it all in. And I think that was an important part of my faith in terms of just learning how to celebrate, to celebrate Mm. the good things, celebrate the holy things, celebrate being a family together. And then my dad had a strong intellectual bent and spiritual curiosity. So we had lots of great reading books in the house and they had something, I would call it kind of stealth catechism, okay. where in our, in our bathrooms, we had this basket with different like periodicals and magazines, and they were all like Catholic ones. So we had Liguorian and Mary Knoll Missionaries uh, publication, mm. and I think Catholic Digest. And then in my dad's library, he had Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, if you wanted to go that <laughs> route and go a little deeper in yeah. Butler's Lives of the Saints. So it was like all kind of available to me. But I know that that really formed me, actually, because mm-hmm. there was one article in Mary Knoll Mission Magazine that a person was talking about asking the students that she was serving, like the children, what is uh, the meaning of Christmas? What's Christmas about? Mm-hmm. And one of the children raised their hand and, and she said, 
well, Christmas is when rich people give stuff to other rich people. Hmm. And it was like, ooh, like yeah. <laughs> Christmas, it can't be about that. And that, right. that hit me. And I, was, and I was a kid myself reading that. So I think those things formed me. And, and then even in the upstairs bathroom, maybe this is TMI for everybody, but, <laughs> uh, which was a little bit nicer in my parents' bathroom. We had a, like the autobiography of Mother Teresa. And so hmm. she was pretty a big influence growing up. Sure. Which for me, my childhood was like the 80s and the 90s. So Yeah, yeah. She was uh, on the world stage a lot, even. Really? With yeah, her, yeah. yeah. With her, and just with her life. Yeah. And so cutting to the heart in the things that she said. So we, we had a neighbor, a Baptist minister, who gave me one of her business cards that she signed when he met her because he knew how much I admired her. Mm. And I think on her business card, it had was it like the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. The fruit of love is service. The fruit of service is peace. And I think I spent a lot of my life thinking about that, even just like, you know, the fruit of prayer is faith. That mm. like, it's not like you have faith and then you pray. It's yeah. like you pray. And in this process of praying, your faith develops as you see how God has heard you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so those are some of the influences of my childhood. Yeah, thank you. Did you ever have moments of struggle or questioning or grappling with, okay, now I have to make this faith my own? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think especially in my like early 20s, I really struggled with really the problem of evil and mm-hmm. where is God? And I think I hadn't lived long enough to really see God in my life, how this was working and kind of had to go keep going to mass, but kind of blindly, like not getting a lot of, it's not like it felt good. Right. I was wrestling. And when I was younger too, I think in a lot of ways I struggled. It wasn't just, it's not like a struggle just with like understanding God. It's like a struggle to become human, right? So, mm. and the teenage years are so hard. And I, yeah. I had a moment actually, which was really impactful for me in my life going forward when I was about... 15, I think it was after my freshman year in high school. And I had started going to, or it was my first time I'd gone to Steubenville Youth Conferences that they Mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. And the highlight or the culmination of the weekend is usually a benediction of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And so I hadn't had a lot of experience with that growing up. But at that benediction, I had an experience of feeling completely loved and completely known by God. I don't know where that could have come from because as a 15-year-old, teenage girls aren't really known for their self-esteem. And (laughs) I certainly wasn't wasn't an exception to that. You know, I was like kind of depressed actually. And I didn't think that this could have, this feeling could have come from me. And I don't even know Mm. how to describe what it feels like to be or feel completely known, but it was there. And in that moment, I was like, okay, God, well, all I really wanted was to be completely known and completely loved. And so Mm. now what do I do with the rest of my life? You know, it's like (laughs) I reached everything that I wanted. And and I prayed about that for a long time, for years, really. Like, what's next? I want to give my life to you, God, but I I don't know how. Mm. And eventually in prayer, what came to me was God saying, my answer to you is your 20s like live your life. You know, I'm not going to give you a word and like do this and then you do it. It's like, just be yourself and grow and try things out and make mistakes. And, and so I think a lot of, you know, my struggles in faith, as I kind of said earlier, it's, it's also a struggle of my own personal development. And the more I become a person, 
then the more God becomes real to me. And that's, I think, the ongoing journey and struggle and dance mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. through life. Yeah. yeah, for whatever reason, there seems to be this human tendency to like want to fast forward to the big moments or the big answers. <laughs> and yeah. I think what we find in, in living life is actually the answers come slowly, but in the, the proper course of time as we're living our day-to-day existence. And here we are thinking back on your life and, you know, summarizing things here in our conversation or so, but actually we're talking about many years and many days and many moments. And I think we have to fight that urge to rush past those to get to whatever answer we're seeking sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's things happening that we're not aware of in the time that Mm. like, for example, I didn't realize this to you asked me to talk to you. And I was like, okay, I have to remember my life now. Like what happened and what was the order? (laughs) And and I was shocked because like, I realized that summer when I had that experience at benediction and I kind of made that commitment of very specifically, like, I want to give my life to you. My mom happened to see an ad in the paper for this fair at the Abbey of Regina Laudis. Hmm. And we went to this, the fair that the Abbey had for many years, 1994 was when we went. It was actually their last year that they had it. But mm-hmm. I had my first experience of the Abbey, which was amazing. They have a theater. So they were doing Shakespeare and they were making these floral crowns for the women. So everyone was walking around with these beautiful like flowers Mm. and leaves in their hair. And there were animals and they had this beautiful new church they had built. And so I didn't put that together. That was that summer because that was the last fair that they went to. And I didn't go to the Abbey for many, many years after that. Mm -hmm. But that seed was planted and I didn't, I wouldn't have known that. Right. And I wouldn't have known, like, again, looking at my life, in retrospect, having that answer of like, okay, live your 20s and just just be that I was 30 when I first came to the Abbey for the internship. So I actually did have my 20s to do many different things mm-hmm. and then happened to come here. And it's like, oh, okay, this is a place where I've landed. So that's kind of like a choreography of the spirit that can't be planned and are usually not aware of it when it's happening, but it's there. Yeah, it's only sometimes in hindsight we look back and say, "Oh, <laughs> there, there you were that whole time." We were some actually of those. there, right? Wait, you do right. exist. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when it came time, you know, kind of late high school, thinking about college or otherwise, what was some of that discernment like? What would you end up doing after high school? Sure. So after high school, I went to college at, to a Methodist college in Alabama called Birmingham Southern College. And my Aunt Pat, who I really loved, lived down there. I wanted to connect with her. And at the time, I was very interested in race relations Hmm. and healing the racial divide. Hmm. And I thought I could ask the questions that I needed to ask in Alabama that I couldn't ask in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And also, I was interested in music, religion, and literature. And the school had a conservatory, and they had majors in literature and religion. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to do this. And obviously born and raised in Connecticut, it was a bit of a culture shock going down to Alabama, but I wanted to reach out. Like I knew I had my prejudices. I had prejudices about the South Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to face them and just grow from being in an environment that I wasn't familiar with. So I went down there and I was in Birmingham for four years and I ended up doing a Bachelor of Music and Vocal Performance. Yeah. And what were some of those experiences like where you felt yourself stretched and and pulled in a good way, kind of expanding your worldview in such a different place than when you grew up? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, one thing I learned that y'all, it's like, it's really great as a pronoun, if that's the word, like it just, it's gender neutral and it encompasses everybody. And it's like, why isn't everyone using this? Why is this limited to the South? Like y'all's, so like that was a change for me. And then I think being from Connecticut, I might've been the only student from Connecticut that year. I think there was one other guy from Rhode Island. I got involved with the International Student Association. So I was Mm. actually around students from around the world, which was really great. And so we bonded that way. And then also being in the Bible Belt, my best friends were Episcopalian and Mm. um, Baptist and Methodist and just getting to learn about their faith and share. And they would sometimes come to meet with me to mass and sing And I loved that. And I think my first year, I joined the multicultural committee. And then that disbanded. And then they had a black student union. And my friends in the multicultural committee were like, just join the black student union. And I'm white, by the way, for anyone who's listening. (laughs) I was like, okay. And so I did that and was elected treasurer for the. And in, in hindsight, it probably wasn't a good idea. Like I probably, you know, not being black in the black student union, it didn't necessarily create a safe environment for mm. everyone else there. And so, but the idea was at the time was to learn as much as I could and sure. be as supportive as I could. And then there were some encounters in college in terms of, it was a uh, sister Helen Prejean was coming through mm-hmm. who was fighting against the death penalty. And so like listening to her and then James Cohn, who was a black liberation theologist, came to the school. I remember him talking very powerfully, very challengingly of how are you going to put your faith in action and really mm. change structures. And he was basically like, where are the black people? Where yeah. at your school, it was very mostly white. And he's like, where are the black faculty? And, and so there was this example of like kind of fiery, challenging faith that was put before me. And then, too, in terms of religion, my advisor was this wonderful Jewish man named Lester Siegel, and we would have conversations about religion all the time. And, you know, he would tell me who his favorite pope was, you know, Pope Mm. John XXIII, (laughs) yeah, and telling me stories of John XXIII crossing out in the the prayers of the faithful, you know, I think it was something about the perfidious Jews. Jews. Yeah. Yeah, And he crossed, he's like, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. And so just meeting with that racial and religious diversity and being able to have those conversations, however imperfect they were, was really valuable, I think, for understanding the world and what is my place in it and what am I called Mm -hmm. to do. Do you find that that helped strengthen your faith? Did it challenge it? Did you face any doubts in kind of that environment or how did that interplay with what had been your faith of your childhood? Mm. I think... In college, it wasn't, my faith wasn't challenged so much as built up. Mm. And I had a great campus minister there at the time who inspired me. And he was someone who was like, wanted to find this meaning of life when he was younger. So he like hitchhiked around the US, you know, he had grown up Catholic, but he wanted to find out the real truth. And, you know, after that period of time, he discovered, oh, there's something to Catholicism. And and then he had gone off to Rome and, and studied theology and had just come back and was then the campus minister. So I was really yeah, inspired during that time. And there is such a strong uh, religious community feeling in the South, right. you know, and which was different from what I had experienced in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you also, obviously, you find an outlet for faith through music, and you talked about singing at mass. Again, what was important to you about performing music that really filled your heart? Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, I definitely spent lots of time singing in church, started off in the folk group, then became a cantor. And I was extremely shy in high school and very reserved, but I still had all the emotions of a normal human being <laughs> and they needed an outlet. And so I found that, you know, starting with musical theater in high school and then in opera in college, it gave me a place where I could express what was going on inside of me and express what I encountered in other people. Mm. And I had this longing to make a connection with others that like a shared understanding of what was happening in their lives, what was happening between us. And so the stage kind of gave me that safe place. I knew the words that I was supposed to sing. I knew the, the movement of what was going to happen on stage. And that gave a security that then allowed me to express these deep things. And then there was also a sense of just community of singing with other people. And one of the highlights of my time in college was singing with the Red Mountain Chamber Orchestra hmm. as a soloist. And that feeling of having all of these people coming together with their different instruments, almost like water or this massive wave that as the singer, I would just ride. And it's like, I couldn't control it. I could just move with it. Mm. And it was really a transcendent experience that I loved. But mostly it was just that communication. And and while I was at school too, I was also singing with the, one of the Methodist choirs was actually my job under, mm -hmm. under Lester. And just so much enjoyed singing with them and singing spirituals. It's just, I don't know, music is music. There's nothing like it. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. As a musician myself, it has a special quality and power. Did you think about pursuing music after college or what were some of those years then? How did, how did you yeah. navigate some of those questions? Well, the thing is, you know, I was using music to communicate all these emotional things, but actually develop some social skills in college. So yeah. I didn't need the stage to communicate <laughs> all of that anymore. Okay. And so kind of as a therapy, it wasn't as necessary. <laughs> and so when I graduated, I knew I wasn't ready to go on singing opera. I wasn't sure it was what I wanted. And I knew I needed a break from the competitiveness and that drive, that constant drive for perfection. Right. And so I came back to my hometown and I worked in my intermediate school for a year, which I loved. And, and I must have been thinking about a religious vocation at the time because mm. I was looking back at my journals. And so I graduated in 2001. And then in January of 2002, I went out for a vocation retreat to St. Benedict's Monastery out in St. Joseph, Minnesota. There's like St. Ben, St. John's okay, okay. College and University out there. Yeah. And they offered a kind of discernment retreat for young women. And so I did that. And it was a wonderful experience. The nuns were so hospitable. I think they gave me a voice lesson. They let me sing to them at the end of lunch one day and taught me some of the artwork that they were doing. And they had a garden and, of course, the university and so much was going on. And I had gone out there. I found out about them through a book called The Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris. Hmm. And she had stayed actually at St. John's. Abbey. And so she wrote from there. And so they graciously, they took me to, I think, Vespers at St. John's one day. And we went in 
to their church and it's very it's like kind of massive and dark and uh, like going into a cave little flecks of light from the stained glass windows and we sat and heard vespers and i loved it there i loved it so much and i realized that i actually like love the presence of men like i like being around men. Yeah. And I'm like, this isn't going to work if I'm going right. to become a nun. Like, I asked them, I'm like, so how often do you hang out with the monks? And they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll go over there for their feast day and they'll come over here. And I was like, oh, like one day a year is just not going to cut it for me. <laughs> and so it was like, whoo, like I must not have a vocation, you know? Mm. And so I kind of put that aside and it's like, all right, well, I address that question and I can move on. So it's like, okay, so now what? And in the meantime, my voice teacher had offered to open up her studio to me and teach me to become a voice teacher herself mm-hmm. or myself. So I did that for a year. I think at the time I was wrestling with like, well, do I go into opera or really have this love of liturgy and theology? I, I think mm-hmm. I missed this. One of the things that was influential to me when I was younger is my mom signed me up to be a cross bearer at church and I was uh-huh. terrified. I was so mad at her for doing that. But I went through the training and once I knew what I had to do, then I loved it. And Mm -hmm. so I was always drawn to the mass and and I loved um, going on retreats. And so I thought, well, maybe I could be a retreat leader or something like that. So I went to one of the places I had gone on retreat was the Passionist. It's a Holy Family Monastery Passionist Retreat Center in West Hartford, Connecticut. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So I called up Father David Cinquegrani, who is a wonderful musician and the director there. And I asked him if I could job shadow him and his retreat team for a weekend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, sure, you know, come and do that. And so when I was there, I met a man named Brandon Nappy, who had gone to Notre Dame for his undergrad, and then he did his Master of Divinity at Yale. Mm. And so I was talking to him about, you know, what I was thinking and and he told me about what a master of divinity was, which I didn't know existed right. for lay people. It's like, yeah. oh. And then when I went online and I looked it up, I'm like, this is everything I've ever wanted. You uh, know? Uh. This is like all these classes. And like, this is what I want to study. And this is so exciting. And he really recommended going to Notre Dame for the MDiv. So that really set me on my path. And I did have one other experience where I went on a, another retreat. I think it's Our Lady of Calvary Retreat Center in Farmington, Connecticut, women's retreat. And I I was trying to decide, you know, opera or theology. And I was in direction with one of the retreat leaders there. And I was telling her my story. And she said, kind of neutrally, you know, it's like, well, you know, when you were talking about opera, you had a lot of energy behind your voice there. Hmm. And at that point, something like welled up within me. And I was like, no, you don't understand me at all. I want to study theology. And it was funny. I'm like, oh, I guess that's my answer. I really want to study theology. But it was (laughs) helpful. I needed someone to reflect back to me, you know, whether it was like they were reflecting what was inside of me or just reflecting what they saw. It allowed me to become really clear on what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So, but because I was a music major, I hadn't taken theology or philosophy classes and there's all these prerequisites to get into the MDiv. And so that started another portion of my 20s of finding a way to get these classes in. Hmm. Great. And eventually you got them completed and, and came to the MDiv program here. What were some of the highlights of your time here at Notre Dame? 
Well, oh, I should say something a little bit before, like how I got the credits to get here. Okay, great. Was there's a University of Notre Dame, Australia, which Notre Dame helped found in Mm. the 90s. And I thought, well, if I have to get these credits, I might as well do it in Australia. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so, that is and my, um, <laughs> my dad's brother actually had moved down there many years ago and he had his family. So I had cousins down there huh. in Perth, Australia. And so I wanted to connect with the family, kind of similar to how I wanted to connect with my Aunt Pat when I went to college. Mm-hmm. And so I did go down there and I did a, a year's worth, like a diploma in theology. And then I fell in love with Australia and the people there. And I also realized I, I loved philosophy. And in talking to the director at Notre Dame of the MDiv, I realized I wouldn't have that much time to study philosophy once I started the program. Mm. So I ended up doing a Master of Arts in Theological Studies, but mostly studying philosophy yeah, uh, and ended up being in, in Australia for about two and a half, three years Wow! Um, before I came to the Notre Dame in South Bend. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. And then of course it, it was like the magical, wonderful place of my dreams when I came <laughs> in terms of what I got to study. And I really, I only applied to Notre Dame because I wanted to be formed by a program that had such strong community aspects and mm service aspects and spirituality and and then of course like the wonderful classes and faculty it really impressed me that getting the mdiv you have dinners together every week and it's like that's not typical in other Mm. programs Mm -hmm. and so the community aspect was really important while i was there and i think some of the things that i remember from that time that i really value one there was our preaching classes by Craig Satterley. I think he's Mm -hmm. a bishop now in the Lutheran Mm -hmm. church, but he taught us, uh, I took all three preaching classes because I loved it. Mm -hmm. And he would tell us like, you can't leave God out of the homily. Like the gospel is what Jesus does. It's what God does. It's not what you're doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, And that was huge for me because I hear like, we are called to act with justice, you know, Craig would cross that out and be like, God calls you to act with justice. Mm. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's a relationship there. And it's not just like a list of things I should be doing, but there's a person here, a person behind this who's loving and saving. And that kind of makes all the difference Mm -hmm. in the faith life. So that was really important. I guess like pastoral counseling classes with Dom Vachon were really Mm -hmm. meaningful and impacted my whole life because he taught us how to listen to people. It's not just about reflecting back facts. You can do that. You can reflect back feelings. But then can you really hear what the need is in another person? What do they really need from you in this moment? And also, do you have the creativity to kind of see like, you know, what is God asking for in this moment? And is there a way to turn this around or, or bring the insights that someone has come to but hasn't been able to articulate yet? Can you bring those forward or draw forth more from a person? So I'm so grateful for those classes. And the last one, I guess, would be a class with Cyril O'Regan on religion and literature. I mean, there are a couple of things that I really loved about his class. And one was that you didn't have to know everything to say something. He's like, just 
express your opinion. And, and mm-hmm. like, he probably knew everything there was to know about it. So he could, you know, he could take what you said and he'd be like, oh, yes, well, I think that's similar to, you know, what Thomas Aquinas was saying. When he, you're like, oh, yes, that's where I was going with that. But that kind of, you know, don't be afraid to have your own thoughts. And mm-hmm. also, I think this came from C.S. Lewis. So we were studying, yes, uh, C.S. Lewis as part of it and the Chronicles of Narnia, because we were looking at children's literature mm-hmm. and how kind of the battle for understanding God is happens in children's literature. And he said that C.S. Lewis had a point that the Christian life, like it may not be this massive adventure, but it's always dramatic. Mm. Every single decision you make, it's like the way of life or the way of death, which way are you going to go? And it has eternal implications. And that made an impression on me. And I think it's helpful in Benedictine life now because St. Benedict could kind of be the patron saint of everyday holiness because, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not going out and taking these massive, you know, we're not St. Paul, like, you know, getting shipwrecked and like, sure. you know, <laughs> lowered down from baskets from like cities and stuff like that. It's yeah. like, you know, it's Dramatic like we're getting out. prison escapes. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, no, no. It's like, we're singing these prayers, you know, we're milking these cows, we're making this food, but it all has, you know, dramatic significance in terms of, I think, the overall just the journey and the history and the unfolding of salvation. These things are important, these choices mm-hmm. that we make, mm-hmm. small choices every day. Yeah. So so his class helped me in that way, prepared me for this life. Great. When did this idea of a religious vocation resurface? Was it during your time at Notre Dame or elsewhere? Yeah, so when I was at Notre Dame, uh, we studied alongside the Holy Cross seminarians, but they would go away for one year during their studies for the novitiate year, and they'd be off in the mountains of Colorado. And I noticed when they came back, they had a better sense of who they were, a better Mm -hmm. sense of who they weren't, and what they were called to, and a deeper prayer life. And I thought that, you know, anyone going into ministry should have that kind of foundation, and stability and self-awareness. And by, you know, anyone, it's really me. Like, that's what I I knew I needed. And so I was like, how can I get my own novitiate, even though I'm not a religious? And at the time, there were other religious in the program called the Missionaries of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so in my class was Father J.P. Patino, and he told me about a monastic internship program that the women of his order had out in Oregon. And so you didn't have to be be becoming monk, but you could live the life. So I Googled monastic internship, and then the Abbey of Regina Laudis came up. And they had the pictures of the animals and the theater and the flowers. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's where I went, you know, when I was 15. And I loved that place. And it's like, that's where I'm going. I talked about the women wearing floral crowns. I still had mine. I kept it all those years, many, you know, for 15 years later, at least. Because it was, it gave me this memory of this beautiful place. And so I was like, well, this is great. This is where I'm going to go after graduation. And then I'll be ready for ministry. And so I applied to the program and I got accepted. And I came to Bethlehem and I was here for a year. And it's really, it's wonderful because like no one asked me while I was here, like, oh, do you think you have a vocation? You know, unless they were another guest, like not the community. It was just here for this. It's a program for men and women. And it's just a time of discernment and building up for whatever your next step is in life. 
And so during my time here, I was working in the garden. There was a nun who was teaching me how to weave. I was working with the shepherdess and just living the monastic life as Mm -hmm. as well as I could. Mm -hmm. I wasn't following their prayer schedule because it exhausted me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, because another thing is I wanted to work with my hands. I'm like, okay, I've been studying theology for five and a half years Mm -hmm. and I need to I need I felt I needed to balance myself out. So I was really focused on the, the physical work. And also I would meet with one of the nuns once a week. And she told me, why don't you bring a song every week? Either you make a song or share one from your past. Cause I had my guitar and I loved mm-hmm. making music. So I spent that year just making music and really praying. And I think, you know, I had struggles earlier in my younger twenties of faith, like I always keep going, but it's, it's different faith from the childhood. Mm-hmm. There's always, maybe it's an adult faith, you know, I believe help my unbelief type of thing. And so towards the end of the year, so I loved that. I guess I loved the, here you have these nuns singing this ancient chant and, but they're also listening to me play my guitar and like mm-hmm. open to that. And but towards the end, yeah, towards the end of the internship, I saw that there was a job opening at a Benedictine school looking for a retreat director and music mm-hmm. leader. And so it seemed perfect. You know, it was Benedictine. It was exactly what I wanted to do. It was like near the mountains, kind of near the ocean, close to family, but not too close. It, like everything yeah. seemed perfect. And mm-hmm. I went up there for an interview and I opened the car door, and I think before my foot even stepped on the pavement, I knew it wasn't right for me. Hmm. And I still went through the interview. Yeah. Um, but then afterwards, I was like, I had it was a four-hour drive back to the Abbey, and I had four hours to think, like, okay, this this job, this situation, this was like everything I ever wanted. Like this was as good as it was going to get for me yeah. as, as a lay minister. And it's like, but I don't want it. So like what do I want? <laughs> yeah. mm. And the truth was, I really, I really wanted to remain at the Abbey and I really felt called to the Abbey. So that was kind of where like, okay, I, I have to look at this again. Yeah. And so did you, was it a, like a more formal entry into formation at that point? Or what are kind of the steps of formation following that, that moment of discernment? So when I came back, I think, you know, I had to tell somebody that I thought I had a vocation, which was so hard to do. It felt so vulnerable. Like my throat was just closing. Like, I think I have a vocation, you know, and the (laughs) nun on the other side is just kind of smiling like, yes, (laughs) you think this is news? We kind of recognize (laughs) (laughs) what they could see long before you could (laughs) speak it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I finished up and I graduated in July of 2011. And I think I ended up entering... December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in 2011. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. in between that time, basically, I was getting my habits made. And there was a huge snowstorm in October while all the leaves were on the trees. So like there was all this damage. So I spent a lot of it just like sawing up wood from trees that had fallen Mm -hmm. on our lawn Mm -hmm. and my parents' lawn. So continuing the manual labor, doing the habits. Uh, I was just like typing up all my journals into my computer, just like reflecting on my life. And, Hmm. you know, sometimes people have a bucket list of things that they want to do. And I really, though there were places I wanted to travel and people I wanted to see, I just had this strong sense that like my life like begins at the Abbey, like any other course just seems kind of like gray and not real. And like there Hmm. was vibrant. And so it's like, I wanted my life to start. If that's my life, I want it to begin now. And I can also say another factor in my decision to 
to come, I went back to preaching class because I realized like if I didn't follow this call, this kind of this joy that I felt and this sense of finding a home, I couldn't go out and like preach retreats to other people saying, follow the will of God, because I wouldn't have been doing it myself. So I was kind of like, I have to do this. I have to be true to this. Mm -hmm. So then, yeah, so I entered in in 2011 as a postulant. Mm -hmm. And the postulancy goes for about two and a half years and then become a novice. And that's when I uh, received the name Sister Gregory. Mm -hmm. I think that was 2013. And as people... I mean, it's getting serious now, you know, habits and names and Mm -hmm. steps of formation. What were some of your loved ones' reactions to this budding vocation? Mm. That's a good question. My parents overall, like they, I mean, they're people of such strong faith and they could see how much the internship changed me and how I was more alive and happier as a person And so they've been supportive, but it's not easy. It's like I'm not as available as I might have been otherwise. You know, Mm -hmm. it is a cloistered contemplative life. Mm -hmm. So not just going to go home, even though home is 45 minutes from here. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be making calls each week back. And so it's always been a struggle that to really trust, it's like, This is my vocation and God is calling me to this. So God will take care of my family and I will be able to love them more as myself. Like I might be more physically present if I weren't a nun, but -hmm. I would be less myself and so less able to love them. And so my parents have always been supportive, but it's not easy. And my sister and my brother, the same way. But they were all here for my investiture or clothing ceremony when I received the name. Mm-hmm. And my brother read then, and my sister was a professional euphonium player, so she played the euphonium as a reflection piece during the mm-hmm. ceremony. But overall, people are su- support are really supportive, especially anyone who knows how happy I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. And then you're temporarily professed. So, what is kind of in the next steps in the future of your formation? Hopefully, within a year, uh, there's usually about three years of temporary profession, and then you can renew. And I'm in completing the second year. You can renew for several more years. But after the second year, you can start preparing for final vows. Mm -hmm. So God willing, I will begin doing that within the coming year. I made Mm -hmm. my first profession in October, on October 2nd, the Feast of the Guardian Angels. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, I can be looking towards final vows. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Certainly have our prayers for that. Thank you. I'm sure I will need them. It's always, (laughs) you know, when you go through these steps of of vows or any movement forward, it's always just like you're kind of squeezed through this narrow path and like everything becomes harder. And then once you go through it, but it opens up to something amazing in the end. But I definitely need all the prayers to like get to that (laughs) point, to like keep going, make the choice. And, and it's, it's exciting and terrifying in a way. And there's a phrase in the community called excluded alternatives. Like if you say yes to something, 
you have to be willing to say no to all the other options. Yeah. And I think that was really hard when I first entered. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, why does one yes mean a thousand no's to everything else? And like, I just want to leave myself open to whatever is possible and yeah. to uh, have to differentiate in this way. But then it's like, I'm never really going to become who I am unless I let go of all these other potentialities. Yeah. The letting go uh, of the nets, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, fishing to follow the Lord or whatever it is in our lives. <laughs> exactly, so like, it's like, all uh, right, I'm not going to be a fisherman, you yeah. know, <laughs> of, of fish anyway. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's like let it go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard for sure. <laughs> but then there's a release of like again, like becoming who you are, being called to something more than you thought you were, mm -hmm. uh, and that's always a part of community. So I am looking forward to it with excitement and and trepidation. So. So a lot of the people, probably most of the people listening to the podcast, have not lived a cloistered or monastic existence. Can you just describe to us what your everyday life is like? Sure. I can describe a typical day. I, right now, my everyday life is a little atypical because okay. I'm in nursing school. And so I'm not in the regular schedule of life because I have to study and go to school and I have clinicals at the hospital to attend. So, but typically the Benedictine life, your morning starts at 1.50 a.m. Hmm. Uh, you wake up for matins prayers, which are about 50 minutes long. We chant the Psalms and we chant them in Latin. And so we begin, it's about four hours of chanting every day if you do the full divine office. And mm -hmm. that is our, our main focus. So then at 5.45, then another morning bell rings to get you up for Lauds, the Office of Lauds at 6.15 a.m. And there are seven times that Benedictines pray in the day and then once in the middle of the night. But we've combined a couple of those offices in order to do the farm work that we need to do. Mm -hmm. So we have the Office of Lauds connected with the Office of Prime, which is preparing you for work for the day. And then there's a little bit of time from between like seven and eight, where people can be go out feeding the animals, or it's a time for Lexio or quiet prayer, or some people having breakfast. We start with the office of terse, then followed by mass. Then we have a little bit of time, you know, between 9.15 and 10, again, for Lexio or doing the things you need to take care of for the day. And then our morning work starts. 10 to 11.45. And everyone's morning work is different. Somebody might be in the kitchen, somebody might be sewing, somebody might have time in their studio, whether it's so like in the rule, Benedict says, you know, a monk is truly a monk when he lives by the work of his hands. So there's a strong emphasis on working with your hands. So some mm -hmm. people will be doing farm work. We have Shetland sheep, we have Dutch belted milking cows. So people are milking we also have belted Galloway, a belted Galloway herd. So they might be feeding the herd. So different animal work. And then at noon is we put the office of sext and the office of known together. So that is about 20 minutes. And then we have lunch. And then there's some silence for Lexio Divina, or if you're on dish duty or washing dishes. Mm -hmm. And then there's afternoon work until about 4.45. Then we have Vespers. Office of Vespers from 5 to 5.30. And then we're getting ready for supper or milking the cows. Then there's supper. And during our meals, too, one of the things is we don't talk during our meals, usually, unless it's mm. a certain, a special day. So we'll have mm -hmm. usually theological reading at lunch. And then 
We could have different, more other types of literature at night. So someone will be reading from a book. If it's a feast day, we'll be playing music during that time. Mm -hmm. So it's while you're eating, it's a reflective time as well. And then uh, we have the office of Compline in the evening at uh, 7.30 usually. And that's how we end the day. Hmm. It's a pretty packed and structured schedule. Yeah. But filled with like beautiful things of music and literature and being out in nature, working on the land or creating beautiful things. There's candle maker, mentioned our weaver earlier. We have a blacksmith, leather worker. So, and I myself am a, a wood turner. So when I can get into the shop to turn wood, I really love doing that. I have yeah. a couple periods of that work. Great, great. And how did this further calling to nursing develop? Was that as a part of your time as a sister? Yeah, it wasn't anything I ever thought about doing, mm -hmm. but there was a need for it in our community. And really, since I entered, I have been helping our what we call our infirmary, who takes care of, of all the sick and looks after the health of the community. I've been helping them out whenever there were nuns who were ill. And I had been helping out one nun in particular who just, she really loved it when I was with her. I think mm -hmm. of a lot of it had to do with the things that I learned from Don Vachon's class. Right. Of like Just like listening to a person and, and having fun and, and really allowing them to do as much as, as they can. And I don't know. So she loved being with me at, kind of to the point where she's like, it was a little obnoxious for other people. You know, she's like, I just want Sister Gregory. Where's Sister Gregory? It's like, mm. oh gosh. But from that, it kind of showed maybe, I think showed to the abbess, like maybe... I had a calling in this area of healthcare. Mm. And so she asked if I would try out becoming a certified nurse aide. And so I did that and went through the program. And then after that, she said, well, what would you think of becoming a nurse? And so I looked at nursing schools in the area. And so, yeah, last year I, I started uh, at, with Connecticut Community College at Naugatuck Valley. They have a nursing program, a great nursing program. And so mm -hmm. I began studies with them. And it was kind of funny because, you know, when she asked me, it was similar to like going into the MDiv. It's like I avoided science and math like the plague. So I didn't have any of the prerequisites <laughs> oh, to get yeah. into this program. So right. it took me a couple of years of studying like anatomy and physiology mm. and chemistry and biology. And I tell my friends, like the fact that I got an A in chemistry is like incontrovertible proof for the existence of God. And like, you know, even if it doesn't convince anyone else, it would convince my high school chemistry teacher because I was just terrible. And so, you know, I built my faith in that way. And I enjoyed learning about the human body. It gave me a lot of perspective and understanding of how life works. Like one of the things that got me was learning that there was something like 37.3 trillion cells in the body. Mm. And then like learning that the cells are, the, there are these amazing things. Like each one is like its own city. Yeah. And with communication and packaging and all this stuff going on. And, and so I thought, okay, our motto is let praise never cease. You know, Regina Laudis is queen of praise. Mm. And if I think about it, if something's going wrong during the day, it's like, okay, one thing's going wrong now. But 37.3 trillion things are going right mm. for me, even just to be here in this moment. And so I was like, okay, that's perspective, looking at life through this lens of gratitude. And it helped me understand the, uh, the cloister too, because I did really struggle with the enclosure and the cloister wall, you know, and, and we have a, a grill and you can see easily through it, but there's a grill in the church. And I, 
it was so foreign to me when I came. I'm like, how can we, you know, divide up the church? And like, how can I be behind a wall? And I used to ask the nuns all the time, like, what's the wall about? And, you know, how can we shut people out? And and they're like, well, you know, don't you have a degree in theology from Notre Dame? Like, can't you do some of this work yourself and like look up what a wall is about, <laughs> you know, the history of that. But I really need to know, like from the inside, like what purpose did it serve? And and the nuns actually use anatomical way of understanding it. Like the, it's like, well, the enclosure of the monastery is like a womb. So it's a permeable membrane. Mm. And basically it's like, it's going to keep out what isn't going to feed the life within. And so that really helped. And then and when I took anatomy and physiology, it's like, oh yeah, like I mean to even have a body, it's like we have to have boundaries, you know, and you know, even your intestines, you know, it's mm -hmm. like you don't want a hole in your intestines. Like right. you, I mean, the, the, you know, there things are going in and out, but like you need an enclosure for something to fulfill its purpose, you know, or the walls within the the heart, you know, and the valves. It's like this is important to have this kind of structure. So interestingly enough, learning the science helped me understand the theology a little bit better and has really challenged me and opened me to a whole a whole new world. And I think I said I, it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. And I think that's kind of the beauty of community life and really obedience. Because mm -hmm. I recently heard the phrase, you know, like, love me as I am, but love me enough not to leave me there. Like, you know, we're called to become more than who we are right now. We're always called to be more. And but then for me, it's like I, it's scary, you know, it's mm. scary to go beyond what I'm comfortable with. And I learned about this thing in, uh, we were studying obstetrics last semester and something, you know, there's a, there's like a few ways or reasons why you'd want to give someone a C-section when they need to have it. And mm -hmm. one was called like placenta pre previa. Yeah. And like with my Latin, I'm like, okay, pre, before, and via, the way. And that's where like the placenta is blocking the birth canal. Mm -hmm. And so the baby can't get up. But it's like the things that are giving it life at that moment are preventing it from actually becoming what it needs to become. And mm -hmm. I think in some ways, like obedience, it's just like someone comes in and gets you because like, I've been, you know, I've created the situation for myself where I'm really happy and warm and I think I have all my needs met, but I am not seeing the larger picture yeah. of, you know, coming out into the world and, uh, you know, and I'm going to do some damage if I stay where I am. So <laughs> might, might be, might come kicking and screaming, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So obedience is kind of like allowing yourself to be drawn out <laughs> kicking yeah. and screaming into something yeah. much better than you could ever imagine. So that's where I am right now. Just just waiting to see like what happens from this next step, this yeah. next step. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that vulnerability and that story. I think it's, it's encouraging for all of us because we can get a bit comfortable in where we are. And sometimes there's a stirring in our heart, whether that's vows of obedience, a spouse, an external prayer partner, spiritual director, confessor, you know, sometimes we're yes. guys working through all those people sometimes to say, it's time to move. It's time for this, uh, this next step. We always like to talk about models of holiness on the podcast, and I think that there are a lot of people who you hear about their holy lives went through some of those moments. Who have been some of the models of holiness that have inspired you in your own vocation? Well, when I think about inspiration that goes way back, I think of this little girl that I met one summer. I was in this program or volunteering at this program near where I live called it was a family development program through the Missionary Servants 
of the Blessed Trinity, mm-hmm. and it might be most Blessed Trinity, but and where families could come who were living in the in their inner city, and they would have this experience of camp in the country, but they'd have this time together. So we'd have like family blanket time on the lawn, and people might have a chance to say like what they appreciated about each other, and then there'd just be time for fun and prayer and different crafts and activities. So there, at this program, there was this little girl, she was four years old, and she had this thing where she would go up to anyone at the camp and she would just like lift her arms over her head, you know, so she looked like a big Y. Mm-hmm. And basically, whenever she did that, someone lifted her up. Mm. And and I, I, she was just, I'm like, oh, if I could just be like her, if I could just have that faith just like open my hands if I want to be held and like trust that God will pick me up. And I, so she has always been a model of faith and holiness to me. And I didn't put this together until just like a couple of weeks ago and hmm. thinking about vows and that position that she put herself in with her hands up. We do that at final vows. It's like part wow. of the ritual. Huh. And yeah, it's like, oh God, you were there you know, that whole time. <laughs> this prayer that I could be like this girl. And then like, here's this ancient ritual where I actually do that. And we sing Ece Ancilla Domini, like Mary's fiat, you know, behold, I am yeah. the handmaid of the Lord in that moment. And so that she's one kind of personal model of holiness from my past. You know, everywhere in my community, I see holiness, my formation mother. I think there's like a spirituality of just showing up. Mm. And it's like, she is there, you know, she's there at prayer. She's there for me like week after week. And our abbess who like, once you become abbess, your life is not your own. Right. You're responsible for the souls of all these women and Mm -hmm. everything that goes on in the abbey. And then the younger members, just like seeing them, have the courage, you know, to follow their hearts and take this risk and leap of faith. Mm-hmm. And then the older members too, of just what they go through as you physically decline, but still being there, still being spiritually vital and entering that kind of holy and humble place as your body fails you. And then other bodies have to come in to assist you in like in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Recently, I found out about the Hillebrand Center at Notre Dame the, mm-hmm. for compassionate care and medicine. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading the story of that, and I thought there's a lot of holiness in this that I'd want to emulate. And I think it's not just one holy person, but there's holy relationships and holy structures and institutions. And so I was reading the story, again, of Dr. Dominic Vachon, Dom, mm-hmm. as, as we called him in the MDiv program. Yeah. And he tells a story of how he was counseling his patients. And he came home one day and he told his wife, I hate my patients. And and she lovingly challenged him. He says, you know, it said, well, honey, you know, you got a problem there because your patients need you to love them in order to get better. And I see a lot of holiness just starting there. And one that he was honest, like he understood who, what he was feeling, you know, and you can imagine why people could get on your nerves after a while if you see them struggling and they're not getting any better or, Mm -hmm. you know, in therapy, you have to be kind of self-centered. So you're listening to people talking about themselves. I don't know exactly (laughs) what it was, but like he was honest in that. So I feel like there's holiness in that, like what's your instinctual response, recognizing that. And then I think there's holiness in that in holy matrimony, he could share that Mm -hmm. with his wife. So 
And then like her response was amazing because she didn't say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you hate your patients or, yeah. or like, oh yeah, your patients are so bad. I wouldn't blame you. But she didn't say, oh, I know how to fix this. You just have to you know, meditate more or something. Like mm. she just said, you have a problem, which meant that she trusted that he could figure it out and probably trusted that she knew he, he wanted to be a healer. He was essentially a healer. Mm. And so I find that there's holiness in that communication. And then his story of starting to teach doctors and others, once he did the inner work himself of like how to remain compassionate within the medical setting, knowing that that's the key to really healing the patients. And then when I, so he did that for many years. And then I think right after I left the MDiv, he was asked to be the director of the Hillebrand Center. Mm -hmm. And then reading about how that started, which was, you know, Ruth Hillebrand was, I think she was also a kind of uh, therapist or counselor in New York. And she received this call late at night. She was all alone. And a doctor told her she had terminal cancer and then hung up on her. And then from that, she must have said, you know, this can't happen. We have to change it. So this doesn't happen to anyone else. Mm. And so she gave her estate, which established the Hillebrand Center. And I think there's so much going on now at Notre Dame in terms of teaching the next generation of doctors how to be compassionate, how to be balanced in care. Mm -hmm. And so, for you know, I see holiness in that. It's like, you can find these holy moments where of honesty, like what Dom said, and holy in relationship, and then holiness where it's like everything drops out from underneath you. It's like you actually have a hole, and it's like, are you going to fill it with you know bitterness and anger and resentment, or are you going to do something with it mm. and open that up to God? So I see holiness in her decision, and then holiness in the fact that Notre Dame exists, and how many people have gone into making Notre Dame come into being and how many people just show up every day for that to happen and this place. And so from that one moment of instinctual honesty from Dom and then this like uh, perseverance, you know, over decades of, of learning and then teaching and then to be really changing the whole structure of the medical system. You know, I think he put out a textbook a few weeks ago. Like I find that that story extremely compelling in terms of like the different types of holiness, if you start like start in one place and then it's like the whole world starts shimmering with all this holiness of, mm. of people coming together of like honesty and giving and then and the decisions that you make in terms of what inspires you and what devastates you and both like create these holes or spaces for God to come into, it just it becomes overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the only thing to do is sing for four hours a day about how wonderful <laughs> life is. <laughs> it's is, the only sane or, response. You're right. <laughs> or you can host a podcast and talk to all these there you people. Go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Different ways to get at it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so in your particular way, uh, being a Benedictine sister and living this life, what has been important for you as you've worked on your own holiness and, and worked on trying to follow Christ in that way? I think community has been the most important. And I have to say, like, I'm not speaking as someone's like, I figured out holiness and no, I'm talking no, to you no, as a holy no, no. person. It's more <laughs> on the way. just like, yeah, it's like I'm on the journey and here are the people I'm grateful for. Yeah. And really my community, when you live in community, you rub up against each other. And when you're ha uh, having a structured life, like having the same thing all the time, it's kind of forms a control group in, in a way. And like, I'm the expert, like it must be me, like I'm the thing that has to change or 
I learn more about myself through the structure and through the honesty of um, my sisters and an honesty of like working with the land, you know, like if I'm taking care of a plant in the greenhouse and I don't water it, you know, it's not going to pretend that that it's not dying, you know, like I'm going to see it wilt. It's like, and then that tells me something about myself. It's like, okay, well, I'm not listening to this plant or I I could work on being more um, regular in how I water, you know, the earth kind of, it's a great mirror, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't lie. Mm. And and so I'm grateful for that. And I am grateful for the structure. It's hard to say because I'm not a very structured person, so I mm-hmm. fight against it, but I need it. Yeah. That there are certain times for prayer. And if I don't show up, someone's going to wonder where I am. So that helps in terms of creating that space for prayer. And I think, so I think those are some of the things that I'm grateful for. And I just, I can't believe that the monastic life exists, that there's this life where I can spend my time singing and working on the land. And it's, it is in many ways, with the exception of like getting up at 545 in the morning, (laughs) it is like everything I ever dreamed of. (laughs) And so it's this combination of like challenge and also incredible beauty that leads me and pushes me towards God, I believe. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And would that we all find that in our own ways, in our own vocations, in our own lives. So, Sister Gregory, thank you for sharing that story, your story. And also, we're going to share your gift of music of your community. Can Mm. you tell us about this piece we're going to share at the end of the podcast? Sure. This is called Alleluia Maria Assumpta Est, I believe. And this is sung on the Feast of the Assumption, which is our the feast day of my abbey, actually. Mm. And it's basically Mary, you know, is assumed into heaven and the angels rejoice. Mm. And I love this piece because it's musically beautiful, but I think it it represents what the monastery tries to do, which is gathering all of creation in the created world and and offering that up to heaven. And, you know, so Mary, as this body is it causes the angels to rejoice. It's like heaven is rejoicing when we can do that. So I hope people enjoy listening to this Yeah, thank you for sharing it. I feel myself rejoicing just to hear your story and the peace that you found and the joy that you found in your life. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, nursing and prayer and song to, Mm -hmm. to share that with us. I think it'll be inspiring to a lot of people, although not everyone is going to be called to the kind of life that you're living. I think we can be inspired by hearing the, you know, the true vocations of each other. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast. As always, we invite you to rate the podcast, especially if you enjoyed it, to share it with others, to listen to the other episodes that we have either in the past or ones coming in the future. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers, and we'll close this episode with a song from Sister Gregory's community.